0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas about society, economy, and Karl Polanyi.
1: We had a bay window where you could see what was happening up and down the street. And just down the street from where we lived was an army barracks, so I could actually see them them rolling out these guns and coming along the street, and then you could hear the bombardment going on all night long.
0: It was 1934 when ten-year-old Kari Polanyi sat in front of her bay window and watched Vienna descend into civil war. The year before, the brewing conflict had forced her father, Karl Polanyi, to leave Vienna for England, where she would soon join him. It was as an exile that Karl Polanyi had arrived in Vienna from Hungary in 1920. And it was as an exile that he would leave the city to begin a new life. Tonight in Ideas, we tell the story of those years as we continue with David Cayley's series on the life and thought of Karl Polanyi. Ranging across anthropology, economic history, and social theory, Karl Polanyi was one of the 20th century's most penetrating critics of what he called the market society. His account of the origins of the modern market economy, the Great Transformation, is as fresh and pertinent today as when he wrote it in 1944. Here's David Cayley with part two of Markets and Society.
2: During the First World War, Karl Polanyi served on the Eastern Front as a cavalry officer in the Austro-Hungarian Imperial Army. Conditions were unimaginable. Here there is nothing, nothing, he wrote to his sister. One should not be able to write, but bark only. In the midst of this nightmare of cold, mud and misery, an illness that had been intensifying its grip on Karl Polanyi for 10 years came to a head. He recalled the circumstances in a letter to a fellow officer written from Vienna on Christmas Day of 1925.
3: When first we met, I was mortally ill. My mind was sick. I was the victim of a melancholia constantly on the increase since my 20th year. Nothing more ghastly can be imagined than this illness. Tormenting, incessant, senseless inner excitement, that is one of its elements. Another, a poisoned feel to life, something like an inward sickliness, as if it were some infernal retching of the soul's self. The third, narrowed-down consciousness, Obsessed, compulsive thinking. You see only a white spot as large as your hand. Space doesn't open up. No third dimension. And what remains is one word in the middle of a patch where everything is clear. Suicide. This word does not represent intent, nor something you are scared of, but a fate already consummated. That you live is but an illusion. Mere accident. Suicide is preordained. You are born to be a suicide, and you haven't much time left. This state of things kept getting steadily worse when I was in the field, coming on in bouts lasting two to three weeks, increasing in intensity and never letting up. This feature of the illness went together with a very ugly little trait. It was simply impossible to tell anybody anything about it. If only you were able to tell about it, you felt... You'd be saved. But to tell about it was just as impossible as to die of it. You had to conceal it. What Polanyi
2: calls a melancholia would today be termed a depression. As his letter to Richard Vank continues, he diagnoses its cause.
3: My wrongly lived life had brought on the trouble. The illness was but the cry of pain of my miserably crippled true life. Then came the turning point, a tremendous transformation. I changed. I understood. Here was the starting point of my later life. My former ego knew duty and the joy of art, passionately, but in isolation, not leading to the building up of the personality. That's how I was when I was in the field, forbiddingly, rigidly duty conscious, yet avidly grasping and delighting in poetry. Today, all is different. I don't believe I'll ever understand what was then choking me as the rope chokes a man being hanged. The problems of pure artistic form. Something else has taken its place. The ethical world. To live and comprehend ethical reality and thus create it. Ethical reality,
2: as Polanyi uses the term here, refers not to moral rules, but to how one conducts one's life with others. Abandoning the problem of pure artistic form, as I understand him, meant giving up the illusion that he could somehow suck salvation out of his own thumb. The alternative was to comprehend and create ethical reality, or in other words, to recognize that the path to freedom lies in and through society.
3: How can one be free in spite of the fact of society? And not in our imagination only, not only by abstracting ourselves from society, denying the fact of our being interwoven with the lives of others, but in reality, by aiming at making society as transparent as a family's inner life is, so that I may achieve a state of things in which I have done my duty towards all men. And so be free again in decency with a good conscience.
2: How to be free in the face of the decisive influence of society was a problem with which Karl Polanyi wrestled throughout his life. The war had impressed on him the image of society as a helpless automaton. Millions sleepwalking to the slaughter, all conspiring to produce what no single one of them wanted all responsible, but none capable of exercising that responsibility. Now he wanted to know how the dark machinery that had produced the catastrophe could be brought to light. end of the war and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire created political chaos in Hungary. In the fall of 1918, a liberal Republican government was formed, only to be swept away six months later by an abortive Bolshevik regime. It lasted only four months before Hungary was occupied by French and Romanian troops a powerful political reaction to the Bolshevik adventure then moved the government and the country far to the right. Karl Polanyi, who had been in hospital with war injuries during much of this episode, moved to Vienna, along with many other Hungarian revolutionaries and reformers. This is Karl Polanyi's daughter, Kari Polanyi-Levitt, retired professor of economics at McGill University and one of the founders of the Polanyi Institute, at Concordia University in
1: Montreal. When my father came to Vienna, after he was released from the hospital, there was a large um, pension, and it was called the Mühle, and it was on the outskirts of the city. And the people who were sheltered there were a bunch of refugees from Hungary, and they were of a slightly younger generation. And they were communists. Well, I don't know whatever that meant in 1920, you know, because this whole communist movement was uh, really very much in formation. And in that um, company, my father found himself, as I say, on the edge, 10 years older and considered, I think, by those younger people as something between an elder statesman and, and perhaps a has-been, you know. And the romance uh, with this uh, beautiful young woman who appeared there, Ilona, was really most unexpected, I think, by everybody, including the participants. Ilona
2: was Ilona Duczynska, her father Polish, her mother Hungarian. A committed revolutionary, she had been jailed in Budapest during the war served the short-lived Hungarian Communist Revolution, and then traveled to the newborn Soviet Union, where she helped to organize a world congress of communist and allied parties. She arrived at the Pension in Vienna on a secret mission, carrying finance for the exiled Hungarian communists in the form of diamonds hidden in a tube of toothpaste. There, she met Karl Polanyi. Polanyi she wrote many years later, was 33 years old, wasted from his long illness, and very lonely. He seemed to her, she said, like one who looks back on life, not towards it. But she was drawn to the benevolence and thoughtfulness of this older man, and he in turn loved and admired her spirit. They married and had the daughter, Carrie, whom you've just heard. Vienna increasingly became their home, and not just their place of exile. Karl tired of émigré politics, and Ilona was expelled from the Hungarian Communist Party for so-called Luxembourgish deviations. Her break with her homeland was particularly bitter.
1: My mother closed the door on Hungary. I mean, cluck. So much so that I grew up in a home which consisted of my mother and my father, my grandmother, that is Ilona's mother, who lived with us, and her trusted Hungarian friend, Argy, who also was the cook and housekeeper of the establishment. My grandmother and Ergy spoke Hungarian, of course, but I grew up in the belief that Hungary was a place to which one could not go. It was a non-place, and it was my mother's edict that I, the child, uh, should um, not be contaminated with the Hungarian language. So I grew up in a home in which Hungarian was spoken without learning the language, because it was not permitted.
2: Ilona duchinska's bitterness towards Hungary mirrored her disappointed revolutionary hopes. Carl Polanyi's views were milder but he for his own reasons wanted to leave hungary behind before the war in budapest he had worked in his uncle's law office a career he despised but followed because his mother wished it and because he had to help support his family after his father's early death in 1906 he had been politically ambitious and as he says in the letter with which i began rigidly duty conscious Now he chose a more congenial style.
1: His lifestyle in Vienna was described by um, my cousin, um, Eva. Carly was a dropout. He just did not want to be successful. That is, in a material sense, successful. And he had absolutely no problem with living throughout all of his years in materially very modest circumstances. But nor did he make a virtue of it. It was simply something of very little consequence.
2: Once he had settled into this modest, scholarly style of life, Karl Polanyi became, as his daughter once said, the dean of his own university, surrounded at all hours by friends and students, weighty talk, and a blue haze of tobacco smoke. The family lived in a working-class district, and Karl Polanyi made his living as a journalist. He wrote for the Austrian Economist, a German-language weekly whose scope was similar to the Economist of today. Polanyi was the foreign editor, a position from which he was able to make a close study of the political and economic currents that would eventually push the world into economic breakdown, fascism, and war. His research was his weekly digestion of the elite Western European newspapers.
1: My father had subscriptions to three foreign papers, the Times of London, Le Temps, which was like Le Monde is today, French paper, and the Frankfurter Allgemeine, etc., as well as, I suppose, of local papers. But these were the three foreign papers. And he would mark the clippings with a very big red or blue pencil at the top and at the bottom. And then there were these big scissors, big paper scissors, and I could sit there and I could cut them out. And I did lots of that, and they felt very important. The
2: clippings that Carrie Polanyi cut were loaded into a shapeless, overtaxed briefcase and trucked to the weekly editorial meetings at which the next issue of The Economist was planned. It appeared, one colleague recalled, that this truly cosmic briefcase contained every possible piece of information relating to world events reported during the past week. Or he goes on, not yet reported, because Polanyi was something of a legend for his foresight and his shrewd sense of what was about to become news. Vienna in these years was socialist with a government that employed what its opponents called tax Bolshevism to build a municipal worker state. Its monuments were the large, handsome municipal housing projects. Apartment buildings, often with interior parks, common facilities like laundry and daycare, and even their own stores. The most famous, still standing, is the Karl Marxhof.
1: The Karl Marxov was simply the largest and best known of these developments, of which there were scores, scores if not a hundred, all over town. Because what was done is that they cleared slums, really very bad slums. The Vienna was known as a city of high rates of tuberculosis, in which Workers were sleeping, you know, this arrangement where the uh, uh, bed is rented to one person in the day and another in the night as people share uh, rooms and share beds on shifts and that. terrible conditions, They tore that down and they erected the most modern at that time. And architect designed. And, and designed by some of the most famous architects of the... Uh, Jugendstil of the nouveau period, which to this day are places uh, desirable places in which one would like to have a small apartment.
2: The achievements of Red Vienna, as it was known, are not much remembered now. But to Karl Polanyi, the city's success in improving the living conditions, education, and culture of its working class amounted, as he wrote later, to one of the most spectacular cultural triumphs of Western history. It was against the backdrop of Red Vienna in the 1920s that Karl Polanyi worked out his distinctive understanding of socialism. In his letter to Richard Vank, which I quoted earlier, he described his younger self as yawing between an idealistic devotion to duty on the one hand and solitary ascetic rapture on the other. And this had prevented, he said, the building up of personality. Then came what he called a tremendous transformation, the recognition that freedom is inseparable from responsibility and therefore can only be worked out in the concrete and interpersonal medium of society, the ethical world, he called it. This insight was the foundation on which he built up his understanding of socialism. Society, he believed, was terra incognita, a kind of here-be-dragons realm which the Western tradition of individualism had so far tried to ignore. So the first steps would have to be almost experimental.
3: Action is the true precondition for constructing an image of society today. Without such an image, we are helpless, because we do not know what we are up against. I have to say that we do not possess such an image today. Society is to us a dark, threatening, inextricable web. And yet, even the most anguishing, the most deformed, the most badly conceived image means a thousand times more than no image at all.
2: Forming an image of society, in Polanyi's view, depends on our seeing it from within and learning to discern the consequences of our own actions. And this was Polanyi's great difference from the dominant view of socialism, which was Marxism. Marxism, he says, views the world from without as a pure automatism propelled by the machinery of the class struggle. It claims that the world can be changed without the individual having to change. All one has to do is correctly apply the principles of historical materialism.
3: Do but one of the following trifles, and we sincerely promise that society in its entirety Will be transformed into an empire of truth and love. Vote in this or that ballot, on this or that colored paper, pay this or that sum, shoot whom we point to. We promise, if you do all this, society, which is built upon you, will change fundamentally."
2: As this little satire makes clear, Polanyi rejected the idea that socialism could be defined in advance of the attempt to achieve it. For him, socialism was a free creation rather than the outcome of a predetermined historical development.
3: Man believes in development as he once believed in God. But God lives in the human heart and we can read his laws in the soul. Development lives in the future. Never has there been such an absurd superstition as the belief that the history of man is governed by laws which are independent of his will and action. The concept of a future which awaits us somewhere is senseless because the future does not exist now or later. The future is constantly being remade by those who live in the present. The present only is reality. There is no future that can give validity to our actions in the present. The accent on freedom and
2: spontaneity in this passage are characteristic of Polanyi and point to what one might almost call the existentialist character of his socialism. He saw socialism as a cultural creation and society as the stuff out of which our freedom must be made. And this approach, says Gregory Baum, was very different from the Marxist doctrine then prevailing on the political left. Gregory Baum is professor emeritus at McGill University and the author of Karl Polanyi on Ethics and Economics, a study of Polanyi's still untranslated German writings from this
4: period. Marxism uh, distinguishes between the superstructure and the infrastructure, that is, uh, the material infrastructure, the economic life. And then there is the culture that accompanies it, and for Marx the culture is really a reflection of the infrastructure, a reflection of the material condition in which we exist. And therefore there is little concern about the creativity of culture in Marx, there's little recognition that culture is an active factor in the creation of society that for Marx culture is most of the time derivative and for Polanyi this is quite different. For Polanyi people are actors, are creative Uh, yes they are determined by many factors uh, that are given, economic factors and other factors but they're never totally passive. There is a creativity in human beings Polanyi never really liked to speak of people as victims and as oppressed because he felt that this was really disguising the creativity which remains with them. And therefore, even in situations of oppression, they remain actors and can do something. And so there was a great trust that people are actors. And therefore, this action isn't simply organizing material struggles, but it has to do with thinking and feeling and mental activities and with creativity. And so this is, I think, quite special in, uh, in Polanyi. Polanyi's crucial difference from Marxism
2: also extended to his view of the working class. Marx and his successors, with their emphasis on class struggle as the main spring of history, had tended to treat the actual working class as almost an embodied idea, an instrument, merely, of revolution. Polanyi, on the other hand, Gregory Baum says, always stressed the workers' capacity to reshape their circumstances.
4: He always was concerned about workers' participation, and this is not at all in uh, the Marxism that developed uh, the classical Marxist tradition had even a certain suspicions of labor unions because they regarded labor unions as willing to cooperate with a system that is bad and therefore they were reformist and not radical enough while Polanyi always had sympathy with the workers responsibility. He always wanted to empower people at the base, people at the bottom. In his
2: emphasis on empowerment from the bottom Polanyi resembles the 19th century thinkers that Marx and Engels branded utopian socialists, men like Robert Owen, Charles Fourier, and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. The tag utopian was partisan. Marx and Engels wanted to establish their own claim as scientific socialists, and it was highly misleading. The so-called utopian socialists were realists when compared with communism's wild promise of a withering away of the state and an end to all exploitation. But the tag stuck. What the utopian socialists argued for was practical measures now, rather than heaven on earth after the revolution. They held that the destructive powers of capital and industry could best be tamed by bringing production under communal and cooperative control. Among them, Karl Polanyi always had a particular admiration for Robert Owen. But Gregory Baum sees the likeness to
4: Proudhon as well. Proudhon was a French anarchist of sorts who believed that society must be transformed by recreating, by reforming, the mode of production. People have to become involved in production and we assume responsibility for it. And if people become involved uh, responsibly in economic productivity, their mind will change, and then they can be responsible in the political field. Proudhon was even against uh, universal suffrage because he said people are not ready to vote; they will vote foolishly. First of all, it has to be something has happened at the base. You see. And I think Polanyi, I think, had in. Uh, he was always a Democrat, but he also felt that, first of all, a social struggle to recreate the economic life from below.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you're listening to episode two of a series called. Markets and Society, the Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi. It's presented by David Cayley.
2: His commitment to recreating economic life from below led Karl Polanyi in a very different direction than Karl Marx. But there was one crucial point on which Polanyi was indebted to Marx. The idea that capitalism turns the products of human hands, hearts, and minds into alien powers. Marx, drawing on Hegel, called it estrangement or alienation. Polanyi summarized what he had derived from the master in an essay on freedom that he wrote in the early 1920s.
3: Capital and labor confront each other independent of the will of individual capitalists and laborers. Again and again it is the case that despite available machinery and natural resources, despite employable workforces and pressing unsatisfied needs, the production apparatus stands still as if lamed, and no earthly power would be able to set it once again in motion. Not human will, but prices decide which direction labor must go. Not human will, but interest rates command capital. Capitalists, like laborers, like people in general, appear as a mere accessory on the business stage.
5: Marx asks a question which is very similar to its own question. It's simply the question, how is it possible that, let's say, economic realities such as prices, such as capital, develop. There do not exist natural properties like that. That's always something which is based on human action. But uh, human beings do not
2: understand anymore what they produce. This is Klaus Thomasberger, a professor at Berlin's University of Applied Sciences and one of the editors of a three-volume edition of Polanyi's early writings in German.
5: So the whole relationship, the whole market process is produced by by human beings. Capital is produced by human beings, but it is produced in a way that at the end, the human beings are determined by seemingly objective categories.
2: For Polanyi, these seemingly objective categories, like prices, are a source of unfreedom because they appear as no one's responsibility. And without responsibility, he thinks, there is no true freedom. How can we be free if our actions continually escape us and produce consequences that we cannot see, cannot control, and cannot answer for? Polanyi's solution, Klaus thomas Berger says, was to organize economic life in such a way that the underlying relationships become visible.
5: He uses the German term Übersicht. In English, it would be oversight or transparency, so that indeed uh, everybody is able to see the consequences of his own actions so that he would be or he could be responsible. That's his socialist utopia at least in the 20s so he uses socialism here as description of a free and democratic society
2: karl polanyi's views on economic democracy first took shape in the early 1920s when he took on ludwig von mises an Austrian economist who is one of the direct ancestors of today's market fundamentalism, as the financier George Soros has called it. The debate concerned the feasibility of socialism. And in order to engage in it, Kari Polanyi-Levitt says, her father had to give himself a short course in the doctrines of Karl Menger, Frederick Wieser, and the Austrian school of economics.
1: My father, I must say, had a lot of courage because he had never studied economics. So he went and he got himself the books from Menger and Wieser and and I've seen them all in his library and he studied this. And the controversy was, was it possible to organize a socialist economy? And Mises' position was, no, it is not possible because without the price-making signals of a market economy, you cannot allocate resources efficiently, and so you cannot organize the economy. And my my father wrote an argument to the contrary, a very long article, which I may say is not at all easy to understand. I tried... Uh, More than once it translated, but I found myself in very great difficulties, which I suspect are due to some genuine problems in his argument. This argument, in brief, was that
2: prices could be negotiated rather than being left to the interplay of supply and demand. Producers, consumers, and the common interest would all be represented in such negotiations. The debate carried on for some time and involved several further exchanges. Polanyi made his case more concise and returned to it several times, but he was never fully satisfied. His student and friend, Felix Schaffer, in a memoir of his years with Polanyi, recalls Polanyi as saying that he would like to publish his theorem, as he called it, but he was afraid there was not much to it.
1: For years, for years, he struggled to try to conceptualize this in in the language of economics. and and he, he did not solve what he called the, the problem. He did not solve the problem. And uh, his um, younger colleague, a student, I would say, Schafer, who wrote the memoir, commented that eventually, uh, he gave up. Polanyi gave up on this and told his story in a different way using history, That was by the Great Transformation. The
2: key words here, I think, are in the language of economics. Karl Polanyi was perfectly capable of making the ethical case for a democratized economy, and he was certainly aware that previous societies had successfully provisioned themselves without a price system. What he could not do was to build a model capable of convincing neoclassical economists on their own grounds. But it was this failure, his student Felix Schaffer claimed, that eventually led him to seek a standpoint outside of economics and so turned him in the direction of history and anthropology, a turn that would eventually have momentous consequences. (music) The 1920s in Vienna were good years for Karl Polanyi. He was happy in his work, happy in his family and friends, at home in the city's socialist political culture. But by the later years of that decade, the political winds had begun to shift. To understand what happened next requires a little background. Austria was a remnant of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, which collapsed at the end of World War I leaving its glorious capital, Vienna, with nothing to rule over but a small German-speaking province. The city, as you've heard, became passionately socialist, but the country preferred the Catholic and deeply conservative Christian Social Party. The enmity between the two factions was bitter, and both possessed their own armed militias. Fighting first broke out in 1927, and by 1933, when Hitler came to power in Germany, Red Vienna had become an island in a fast encroaching sea. Karl Polanyi was summoned by his employer at The Economist, or Volkswirt in German.
1: The uh, owner of the Volkswirt, who was also its chief editor-in-chief, decided that they could not afford to keep Karl Polanyi, on the editorial staff, because he was a declared socialist. The red, as they said at the time. And um, suggested that he should um, perhaps find a job in England and also told him that they could no longer meet his salary. Right, In other words, he was fired, politely. And this is what he did. He went to England, where he was able to organise... Uh, another life in England.
2: Kari Polanyi, then 10, stayed in Vienna with her mother and her grandmother, and she
1: remembers the day in 1934 when civil war finally began. When I went to school that day, and when I saw that the electric clock at the Pratistan which was a great big plaza where many roads meet into a sort of a star, Stern means star, had stopped dead at 12 o'clock. I knew that this strike must have started. And I went home, and I was um, told by my mother that there was now this strike, and there was this battle coming, and I was now responsible for my grandmother, and my mother would be away and I was um, given I think a ten shilling note I have never had a paper money in my life before. and went downstairs and bought several kilos of potatoes and some bread and then instructed my grandmother that I thought we should fill up all the tubs with water because the water might get locked off. I actually don't know who told me that. I think I thought about that myself. And that the electricity, of course, was off. To her great distress, and I explained to my grandmother that this was a good thing because there was a strike, and so long as electricity was off, it meant that you know we were winning. But when it comes on again, that will that would be very bad. Well, my grandmother was not <laughs> too excited about <laughs> about this interpretation of the matter. But anyway, for the next few days, I was home, and we had a bay window where you could see what was happening up and down the street and just down the street from where we lived was an army barracks so i could actually see them see them rolling out these guns and coming along the street and then you could hear the bombardment going on all night long and a day and a night the shelling of the uh, gemeindehäuser
2: the gemeindehäuser were the municipal apartment buildings that became the site of the main fighting.
1: And by Thursday, I think, when the lights came on, that was more or less uh, the end of those days. Now, in that period, the leadership of the uh, Socialist Party um, fled from Vienna and went to Prague. And basically, it was the end. This was the end. It was a, a defeat of Austrian socialism, from which it never recovered. And uh, the following Monday, when I went back to school, the director of the school was missing, and half the teachers were missing, they had all been sacked. And this is an enormous right-wing cleaning up, whereby all known socialist teachers were dismissed. And um, shortly after that, I was sent to England by myself to join my father, and my mother stayed, and my mother stayed for two years, and she worked in what was now the illegal, an underground organization.
2: Ilona Duchinska rejoined the Communist Party and assumed the alias Anna Novotny. One of her most daring exploits was the creation, with friends, of a portable transmitter, that could broadcast on the frequency of Radio Vienna. Every day, between 11.55 and noon, Radio Vienna interrupted its service for five minutes, during which only the ticking of a metronome was heard. This was when Ilona Duchinska and her comrades would assemble their transmitter, co-opt the state's bandwidth to broadcast their defiance of the new government, and then hastily disassemble it and disperse ever the revolutionary. She was in her element, and it would be two more years before she finally rejoined her family in England. (music) Carl Polanyi arrived in England in November of 1933. Already fluent in the language, but a stranger to the country. His new home
1: made a powerful impression. When he arrived in England, I think it was a real culture shock. And the culture shock I know because I was 10 years old and I experienced the culture shock of the difference. And, you know, taking into account the fact that England at that time was the richest country in the world. It was Britain. And it was the best of all things. It was very much how the United States appeared in the 1950s and 60s to Europeans, you know. So it was a mecca. Uh, yeah, but then to discover that, you know, the slums and the coal pits and the dirt and the streets with no trees, and, and not only that, but really the cultural deprivation of the working classes as my father saw it, which was a shock. The educational level of working people was lower in England than in Vienna. Although in Vienna there was high unemployment and it was a much poorer country. And that's certainly a defining experience that my father had and which I shared, which I remember.
2: For Polanyi, England was a revelation. In the wounded landscape, and in the demoralization of the working class, he saw something that would prove crucial to his later work, a vision of the enduring cultural trauma that industrial capitalism had produced in its first homeland. But his first challenge was just to establish himself. His starting point was his connection with an emerging movement called the Christian Left some of whose members he had met earlier in Vienna. For the next few years, he became part of this movement, one of its prophets, according to Irene Grant, who was the group's main organizer and spark plug. And he contributed very substantially, both as a writer and an editor, to the Christian left's main statement, a book published in 1935 called Christianity and Social Revolution. What Polanyi shared with this group was the idea that socialism is the only way to preserve and complete the West's Christian inheritance under modern conditions. This was a key idea for him, and I will unfold it more fully when I have more time in the next episode of this series. Polanyi's close association with the Christian left began to wane somewhat, though it did not end entirely, after 1936. One reason was the reappearance of his wife, Ilona Duchinska, who finally abandoned the lost cause of Viennese socialism and rejoined her family in London.
1: My mother arrived in 1936. We were living at that time in a boarding house in Weston Lane, West Kilburn, West Hampstead. And she found Little house in the country in Kent, in the middle of nowhere, the countryside was beautiful, in Kent it overlooked a beautiful valley. It had no electricity. So we had a little kerosene stove to cook with. We had one mantel lamp, incandescent mantle lamp, which was in the living room, otherwise only candles. And my mother made a home there from 1936 on. She liked to live in the country. She always wanted a garden. And the ground that this little house stood on must have been the most uninviting, totally hopeless ground to cultivate It just consisted of flintstones and clay, thick clay and lots of flint that you needed almost a pickaxe to break it and make a garden but she, well, she tried and um, I think they were quite happy there there was a telephone My fa- the only requirement my father had for any place to live and there must be a telephone he was always on the telephone you don't have electricity that's ok you don't have gas it's ok but you must have a telephone and It was not long after that that he got the position with the WEA. The WEA
2: was the Workers' Educational Association, and his involvement in it plunged
1: Karl Polanyi into a new and absorbing life. He was lecturing in small towns in Kenton and Sussex. The lectures were held in the public library usually of places like Tunbridge, Canterbury, Bexhill-on-Sea, and he often had to stay overnight with some of the students, with some of the folks there, and that was his encounter with English working class life. His first close encounter, I would think, with working class life anywhere, but He stayed overnight with people, and I think that that made a very big impression.
2: This close encounter with working class life was one of several great boons which arose from his work with the WEA. Another was his discovery of economic history, a field where he would eventually make a huge contribution with his book, The Great Transformation, but which he first got to know because he was required to teach it. And then there was the teaching itself. He had, of course, always been a teacher. Students had gathered round him in Vienna, and he had already undertaken several extensive lecture tours in the United States, where he spoke everywhere from Princeton to tiny Piedmont College in the mountains of North Georgia. But now he reconfirmed this vocation and recognized anew that he was as he wrote to a friend, born to teach.
1: I think he liked his vocation very much, and he prepared for his classes as if he were addressing students in Harvard or Yale or Cambridge or you name it, as if it was a crowd of 200 students prepared, lectures. And he was a great orator in his day in Hungary, legendary. So his delivery was, you know, <laughs> grand. He was a great teacher, a great educator. And he really found his metier, and he found his audience. And that's the beginning of the book of the Great Transformation. comes in the lecture notes.
2: Polanyi's years with the Workers' Educational Association were the years of what Winston Churchill called the gathering storm in Europe, Karl Polanyi and Ilona Duczynska watched events closely and did what they could for friends and family left behind in Vienna.
1: Both of them then were quite active in efforts to um, assist people to obtain visas and to get out of Austria. And uh, there was much contacting of important persons in Britain to write the necessary letters, particularly Lord uh, Wedgwood. Josiah Wedgwood, who was a Labour Party supporter and who had a family relationship to my mother. And uh, that family connection with the um, Wedgwood family, I believe that actually we owe the great fortune of my father receiving a Certificate of Naturalization, British, in May of 1940, few weeks, perhaps very few weeks, before he would have been interned, as so many other people were. And given his age and given his state of health, uh, The Great Transformation would never have been written.
2: The Great Transformation was written with an ease that surprised even its author between 1941 and 1943 at Bennington College in Vermont. Polanyi's purpose was to illuminate the political and economic origins of our time, as his subtitle had it. He succeeded, and the book has been astonishing and enlarging its many readers ever since. It will be my subject in the next program
0: of this series. On Ideas, you've listened to part two of Markets and Society, The Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi. It was written and presented by David Cayley. The words of Karl Polanyi were read by Care Wells. Our series continues next week at this time. Our thanks to Anna Gomez, Margie Mendel, and Kari Polanyi-Levitt of the Polanyi Institute at Concordia University in Montreal for their help in preparation of these programs. Technical Production, Dave Field and Tim Lorimer. Editorial Consultant, Richard Handler. Associate Producer, Liz Naj. You can order a printed transcript of this five-hour series for $25, or five audio cassettes or CDs for $40, taxes and shipping included. To order, please call 416-205 7367. You can also send a check or credit card information to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A Toronto, M5W 1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, I'm Paul Kennedy. The news follows, then the Arts Tonight, and Between the Covers.